Well, this morning we come to the God-breathed words of Matthew 6, verses 16 through 18, Jesus' instruction on a topic that I know you have been long waiting for, excited, thrilled, fasting. And it's not about intermittent fasting, and it's not about a preparation for your colonoscopy or your lab tests. And that gives us some perspective of our understanding because those are the types of fasting that we're familiar with. But it is the foregoing or giving up food and drink for the purpose of focusing on what's important to the Lord. And this, in many ways, is sort of a foreign and lost concept, really, for American Christians in a nation where we are consuming and eating ourselves to death. And so, understandably, the idea of fasting, even in the church, is something that is really a distant memory. But as we come to Matthew 6.16, Jesus doesn't say to his disciples, if you fast, what does he say? And when you fast. And the implication here is like giving to the needy, like prayer, like forgiving one another. Jesus expects fasting to be an intentional and regular part of his disciples' kingdom life, beginning here in this fallen world. And Jesus' point, together with all of these practices of righteousness that he's been walking us through in Matthew 6. And, you know, he gives these not to be, okay, this is everything you're supposed to do. He's giving these as sort of the flagships, the hallmarks, the big pictures to point out the principles behind them, right? Jesus is not a workspace righteousness, but he's using these to show that there are practices of righteousness that really expose and reflect what's going on in our hearts very much so in the way in which we carry them out, right? And he's using these together to show that there are ways in which God's children express their devotion to their Heavenly Father. And the ways in which we express our devotion to our Heavenly Father really reveal what's going on in our hearts. And it really reveals our relationship with our Heavenly Father. Is this relationship and the way in which we live and the way in which we worship, are they expressions of a heart that's devoted by faith to the Lord? Are they expressions of a completely new life? A life that lives and expresses its devotion, not in the way the world does, which is all about how does this work well for me, but a life of devotion that's really an expression of faith that is really all about who God is and what he's done for us. And so that's really our, our big truth for this morning. This is what Jesus as king is teaching us, that God's beloved children are to live lives of faith that are devoted to their heavenly father, or very simply as you see up, uh, on our PowerPoint, God's beloved children are faithfully devoted to their Heavenly Father. And of course, it begs the question, what are you devoted to? Well, whatever you're devoted to is going to be revealed not only in what you do, but the way in which you do it. And when we talk about this idea of faith, a devotion of faith, faith, we're talking about a trust and obedience to God for who he is, a trust in God, not ourselves. And when we talk about devotion, we're talking about an intentional love and loyalty that is given to someone else, someone other than ourselves. Of course, we can be devoted to ourselves, but where does our love and loyalty go? And as we walk through the scriptures and Jesus shows us, proof of such faith and devotion is evidence in lives of growing obedience to God's word increasingly we look like Jesus, where the delight of our lives is to do our Heavenly Father's will and work, regardless of the cost. Now, we're not all there, are we? 
But the idea as you walk through and you see how Jesus shepherds the disciples is this is the direction of a disciple's life. This is the direction that we're supposed to be growing. We're not supposed to be stuck in one place. If there's a direction that we're growing in, it's that day by day, minute by minute, our joy and delight in doing our Father's work and will should be growing if indeed we are God's children, if indeed we're walking by faith. And this, brothers and sisters, is known as holiness. We have this definition of holiness where it's, oh, some monk or some priest. But as we come to God's word, holiness, as Sinclair Ferguson points out, is simply a devotion to someone or something else. A life that's set apart. And what's it set apart for? Right? And holiness is about a life that is set apart for the love of our Lord. And this is where Christ is leading the disciples and us with his Sermon on the Mount. And this is the question that his words demand of us. Are we devoted to our Heavenly Father like Jesus? Right? And according to Jesus, it's going to show in the way in which we give, the way in which we pray, the way in which we forgive one another, and yes, the way in which we fast. So if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew 6? I'm going to start at 6 verse 1 just to give us the context. And when we come to the Lord's Prayer, because we spent a fair amount of time in that, I'm going to assume you know it by heart. And so we'll skip down to the portion on fasting and we'll sort of see the three big sections that sort of structure the first half of Matthew 6. This is our Lord speaking, Matthew 6, 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they, they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. If you would, drop with me down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. These are the promises and commands of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Men, let me ask you, did you get something sweet for your honey this week? Did you give her something special for Valentine's Day? Quiet out there. Well, I, I, I gave my wife the flu. <laughs> and a grip of cough medications. Now, as you think about that, those are all acts of devotion. What we give in love and loyalty to let that other person know they're our special someone. But as you hear me out, you see that not all acts and works of devotion, they're not all equal and they're not all pleasing and they're not all good, right? And as we come here to Matthew 6, what Jesus is walking through, giving, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting, and he's doing these contrasts. This is the way the world does it. This is the way all the false religions do it. 
but this is the way you're to do it. And this is the way you're to be, right? They stem from who we are. Are we beloved children of God? And is our devotion a devotion like Jesus, a devotion of faith, where we're doing these things purely because of who God is and what he's done in our lives, purely out of love for who he is, he's our heavenly father, and not for any personal gain or advantage or applause of men, right? And he's setting apart the devotion of God, the devotion of children of faith, really his devotion, from the devotion of the world. The devotion of the world is, what does this do for me? And I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to work for you, my employer, because I get a paycheck at the end of the month. And as soon as that paycheck stops, I'm out of here. I'm going to serve you and love you as long as I find you attractive. And when you no longer are attractive to me, I'm moving on to the next. Free agency, that is the devotion of the world right? The day laborer, what's called selfish ambition, right? I do it as long as it works for me. And Jesus is coming in every act of devotion because all of those, all the religions do. What separates them is not the act. What separates them is the heart. And he's saying in the heart, really, why are you doing this? And the way in which you do it First for the Lord, but then for the people of God, how we speak to our wives, how we speak to our children. Do we love our children for what they can do for us? And when they stop doing it, see you later. You didn't get the A, you didn't get the award, you didn't get the college scholarship. I'm out of here. Right? Now that sounds selfish when it comes to children, but many times that reflects the ways in which we love and we're devoted, including in our ministries, in our service of the Lord. That's the propensity of our flesh. That's depravity. And Jesus is coming and he's shepherding the disciples. He says, that way is gone. It's my way because I'm your king. And we see in Jesus, from the cradle to the cross, his devotion to his heavenly father is out of a pure and holy love for who his father is, right? It was beautiful. And as he goes to the cross, this is what we hear. And we hear basically a repeat of the Lord's prayer as he comes to the cross. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? Father, not my will, but your will be done. Right? And he's walking the disciples through this as we get close to this section on fasting. It's all part of this context that these are always not so much on the work, but the devotion of the heart that is to be a devotion of faith. Trust, love, and confidence in who God is and how perfectly he loves his children. That's the basis of why we do what we're to do. And this is what is to be a hallmark of a child of God's life. And that brings us to our first point for this morning, that God's beloved children are to be rightly devoted to their heavenly father, like Jesus, right? This is what set apart Jesus' earthly life from everyone else, right? He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. He is always trusting and obeying his heavenly father, not because it works out well for him or it gives him leverage or advantage, it's simply out of love for who his heavenly father is. And this is his devotion, right? And this is the devotion that sets him apart from the world. And as we walk through scripture, and we're going to do a lot of that today to give us a framework of what fasting is. You see, this is always what God asked of his children, but his children rarely delivered. So this is why he sends his son really to show us the way, but also to give it to us. And so when you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what God asks of Adam is simply the devotion of faith. And that's a devotion of faith that comes what, what's expected really of Adam, that he would rightly hear and honor and obey God's word. Why? Because God is his creator and father, 
and everything he has has been given to him by God. He doesn't do it because what's going to come next? There are consequences if he doesn't do it, but that is only a small part of the context. Yes, indeed, if he doesn't obey God, he's going to die. But we've got to see that in the context of everything that God has done. That it's meant to be a devotion of love for God where he honors God and he honors God's priorities that the consequences are really big. And then we come to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4 has two sons, Cain and Abel. And they give two sacrifices to God. Two acts of devotion. One sacrifice is accepted by God and the other is not. Why? Well, Hebrews 11.4 tells us. It says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. What was the difference between the two sacrifices? To our eyes, very little. But to God, who looks on the heart, one sacrifice was an expression of faith, a devotion to God for who God is and what he has done. And the other sacrifice was devoted to who? Well, Cain was devoted to himself. Yes, he gave that offering. Yes, he gave that sacrifice. Well, what's the proof that this was a devotion to self, ultimately? And it's instructive because this is what Jesus is addressing in the Sermon on the Mount, that there are ways we can superficially do things for the Lord, but really we're doing it for ourselves. It's because when Cain didn't get what he wanted, he didn't get the response that he wanted from his offering or his sacrifice. How did Cain react? He got angry and he killed his brother, right? And so we see and we look at it and it's helpful for us to think when we don't get what we want, how do we respond? And that response many times reveals why we were doing things in the first place. When I get upset with my boys for not doing things the way I wanted them to, I have to ask myself, am I really doing this for them? Or am I doing it for me? And the good news of God's word, Christ has come to really set us free. And he sets us free from that by showing very clearly our hearts and the distinction between what a devotion to God looks like and what a devotion to me and my fallen self looks like. And he's showing the disciples the stakes are very high. You really have to look at what you do for the Lord and look at your responses and really consider, are you really doing this for the Lord or are you doing this for yourself? And as we come to Deuteronomy 6, 4, we see the Lord God really spells this out in great detail. What's the command and demand that he makes of his, his children? He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is the devotion that only God can give. And this is the devotion Christ came to give. And it is a love and devotion that the world cannot give because the world loves itself way too much. It's blinded by its self-love and it hates God and it hates the things of God. So it can never really fully do this. And instead what it does is it tries to pretend to do it for the Lord when instead we're really doing it for ourselves. And the beauty of God's word and the beauty of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he walks us through these activities of faith is he setting us free from that. He is providing us a devotional life that is purely and wholly for God. And this is the life he gives and this is the faith that he gives. Why? Because he is the eternal son of God who is perfectly devoted to his heavenly father and because of his heavenly father, he's perfectly devoted to those who follow him. 
And this is where Jesus brings us to as we come to this final section on fasting. He's showing the disciples from their hearts to their hands. Their lives are to be lives of devotion. And when they give, and they give to the needy, they do it purely out of love for their Heavenly Father. Why? Because their Heavenly Father is a God who gives to the needy. And when they pray, that prayer is meant to be holy for the Lord, for His will to be done, for His will to come. Why? Because they have a Heavenly Father who is purely devoted to them and prays for them. And they're to forgive one another. Why? Because their Heavenly Father is a forgiving Father. And when it comes to fasting, which involves sacrifice and giving up things on a daily basis that we take for granted, why are they to do that? They're not to do it for some spiritual superpower or to be better than other people. They're to do it because their Heavenly Father is a Father who makes sacrifices for them. Because for him, there is something far greater and far more important than the things that we use and take for granted on a daily basis. It's about priorities. And Jesus is showing them that fasting is really about priorities and what we focus on. Do we, in all of these acts of worship and what we do, from singing to preaching to teaching to putting money in the offering, are we sharing the priorities of our Heavenly Father? Is what is important to Him important to us because we love Him? Or are we pursuing our own priorities? I had a physician who worked with me. Not a believer, Jewish man. And yet he was instructive. Grew up in an Orthodox background when he shared with me very clearly in the office, when people were struggling in the office, he said, if it's a problem for them, it's a problem for me. Why? Because we're in this office together. And it was a lesson well given as we think of our marriages, our families. Hey, if someone's struggling, it's not, oh, that's their problem, go figure it out. If it's a problem for them, it's a problem for me because we're united together. But where does ultimately that come from? As a child of God, it begins with, hey, if it's a burden and a concern and it's a priority for God, it's a burden and priority for me because he's my heavenly father. And that's why Jesus is able to come when Saul is persecuting the church. And he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, what's this got to do with you, Jesus? Well, what Paul, Saul was doing to the church, he was doing to Christ. There's that unity where they shared what was important. And so this comes to our second point for this morning. God's beloved children are to share their Heavenly Father's priorities and sorrows. God's beloved children are to share their Heavenly Father's priorities and sorrows. And this is really the Sermon on the Mount in a nutshell. The good news of God's Word is that because of God's work in Christ in a believer's life, they no longer belong to the world, and they no longer belong to the world's priorities. Praise God for that. The world's expectations, fame, fortune, success in your career, and that doesn't mean you're to be a slouch, okay? We're set free for these reasons to serve the Lord. You know, Paul tells, tells us, don't abuse your freedom for your flesh when you're set free from the world's expectations. It's to serve the Lord and to love one another but we're set free from those expectations and those standards that the world sets upon us. Not because we're living for ourselves, but now we're able to live for our Heavenly Father. And part of that is we're set free from both the world's priorities, but also the world's sorrows. What makes the world sad, we're not sad about. I don't get applause from everybody on the street. Oh, well, right? The things that make me sad, whether people say I'm fat or short, whatever. It's not my sorrow anymore. But instead, our priorities are the Lord's priorities and they're the Lord's sorrows. And as you see, the Lord's sorrows are beautifully about what is most important. 
And in Matthew 6, Jesus is showing his disciples, now that he is king of their lives, how their giving and their prayer and their forgiving and fasting are really to reflect God's priorities, not the world's. And this is especially true when it comes to fasting. Now, because fasting is a little bit foreign to us, I wanna take some time to walk through the Old Testament to give us the foundation of fasting. As you see, Jesus is typically speaking to disciples who are Jewish. And the assumption as he comes through these things is that they understand and know and they've got a, a foundational framework from the Old Testament of God's standards of right and wrong. And then he talks about how it gets abused. We're sort of missing that, okay? Today, religious fasting for most people is associated in America with Muslims who fast for Ramadan. You watch the NBA, you see Kyrie Irving sort of switch out basically, get an IV or whatever during Ramadan, doesn't eat until the halftime break and then comes out. That's our exposure, celebrities who are fasting for Ramadan because in the church it's pretty well absent. But fasting like giving to the needy and prayer, those are all acts of worship and devotion that are common to most ancient religions. You look at all the ancient religions, Buddhism, right? You would say, obviously, Judaism. But in the Hindu faith, you look at all of these ancient religions, prayer, giving to the needy, and fasting are all hallmarks. On one Muslim website, it makes the point that fasting is one of the five pillars of Islam. That's what sets apart a Muslim. It's mandatory. The reasons given for fasting are similar to the reasons that most of the ancient religions, even today, all the ones I mentioned, including the Catholic Church, why they fast. Fasting is, and this is listed from this Muslim website, a spiritual discipline, an act of devotion, a religious work that's done to attain spiritual purity, spiritual power, and spiritual self-control. It's done to seek forgiveness from Allah. It is done to appreciate the hunger of others so that all men, rich or poor, will be equal and experience the same thing during the month of Ramadan. Now, as we think about those things, we see those are similar reasons why many people train to run a marathon. I want to have discipline. I want to have self-control. I want to be able to do something that shows that I can overcome my flesh. They're the same reasons we take our children to church and to piano lessons, right? On the other hand, you have the mystics where fasting is about a way to reach a higher spiritual state, a way to experience God, a way to manipulate our bodies to have a certain spiritual experience. But as you look at both, whether it's the fasting of mysticism or whether it's the fasting of a religious legal tradition, they're two sides of the same coin. It's man-centered, and it's what we do by our works or our methods or our exercise to attain a spiritual maturity or dignity or a purity over our bodies or to experience a certain amount of control. Now, those are the principles. The truth is we do those things in just about every aspect of our life. And in America, the big area of focus is our fitness, right? And our obsession with fitness. Same principles. But as we come to God's word, fasting is something completely different. Fasting is a consequence in God's word. It's a consequence and a response to God's presence and work of grace in the lives of his people. It's a consequence and response of God's presence and his work of grace in the lives of his people. It's worth noting God gives no direct command to fast in scripture. And yet as you walk through, fasting is a regular part of the lives of God's people. And the first account of fasting I believe we have is instructive. It's found in Exodus 24 and Exodus 34. Moses, on two occasions, by the Lord God's call and command, comes into the Lord's presence on the top of Mount Sinai. God calls him to come up into his presence on the top of Mount Sinai, where he is to receive the Lord God's covenant on behalf of Israel. 
And it's there, Exodus 34, 28. It says, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So here it's clearly Moses fasting. Moses is not striving here for spiritual power. Moses, this is not an act of self-discipline. This is not Moses trying to have a special experience with God. God's called him already. He's coming to God's presence. And he's not trying to prove to God or himself that he's disciplined or devoted enough. It's the consequence of God's calling and work in his life to come into his holy presence and to receive his word and his covenant. And the not eating bread and the not drinking water for 40 days and 40 nights is a consequence of God's presence and his power in Moses' life sustaining him. It is miraculous. It is not normal. And we're meant to get that, I believe, from the text. This is God sustaining him, but it's secondary. All of that is happening so Moses can focus on what's most important. Fasting, brothers and sisters, is about priorities. God's priorities. And what's God's priority for Moses? That Moses would be in his presence and would receive his word and receive his covenant. It's about holiness and their relationship. That is what he wants him to focus on. Have you ever been so busy at work that you forgot to eat? Missed a meal. Why? Because you had something more important to focus on. You had a deadline. You had to get it done. Have you ever done that for the things of the Lord? The Lord shows us a similar view of fasting as we come to Deuteronomy 8.3. The Lord God explains why he led his people through the wilderness for 40 years. Have a look at this. This is important. Deuteronomy 8.3, if you can. It says, and he humbled you, Moses speaking to the Israelites, and he let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know what? That man does not live by what? Bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Is the Lord commanding people not to eat? No. Is he showing why he personally withheld food from them and brought them into a place? He did so so that he could feed them personally and ultimately to humble them and to teach them what was most important so that as they carried on in their journey, yes, they need bread and I'm going to provide it for you, but I want you to know your relationship with me, it isn't all about bread, what you need for life. There's something more important, priorities. God ordained fasting, that's what it is. God withholding food. God withholding a spouse. God withholding a child. God withholding a career. All the things that the world deems essential. And God doing so in love as his instruments to test and strengthen our faith and to focus our lives on what is most important. And you know, brothers and sisters, when you lose something or something's taken away, it's hard, it's grievous, it's difficult, it's humbling. And yet, if we're willing to wait on the Lord and not become bitter, we see over time how the Lord is really not being mean or punishing or trying to put you in your place. He's trying to help you focus on what you need many times in order to take care of the gifts that you want. He's teaching us that there are things and there are people and there are priorities that are more important than food, family, and work. And it begins, what's more important, God's presence in our lives, his word in our lives, his work in us. Humility and hunger are a preparation for his people to receive his presence, his word, his love, and his leadership in our lives. And that's why the psalmist in Psalm 119, 71 says, it was good for me that I was afflicted 
Anach, note that word afflicted because we're going to come back to it again because we tend to think of that word afflicted as being punished, okay? But that is not the nuance of the text. It was good for me that I was afflicted, Anach, that I might learn your statutes. And this is the principle, brothers and sisters, behind the corporate and individual fasting of God's people of faith. And we see it go wide in the Old Testament in Leviticus 16 and 23 with Israel's observance of the Day of Atonement, where on the Day of the Atonement, they were to fast, at least by tradition, they were to fast for 25 hours. Okay? If you have your Bibles, it's going to be helpful for you to go to Leviticus 16. The Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur, is the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. And traditionally, all God's people are to fast for 25 hours. They're also to forgive one another and relieve debts on that day. And it's on this day God commands his people to draw near to him, not dissimilar to him calling Moses to draw near to him, to draw near to him in his tabernacle. And it's the one day of the year that the high priest was permitted to enter into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God's Spirit. And for what purpose and what priority? Have a look at verse 34. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. The priority here is atonement. Now in English, atonement comes from the word at one reconciliation with God. But in Hebrew, that word kippur or kafir refers to covering, to paying a ransom, or to wipe clean. And the Lord is showing his people, before they can be forgiven, before they can be reconciled, their sin must be atoned for. It's conditional forgiveness. I want you to be forgiven. So I am personally going to pay the price for you. To be forgiven by the God who had saved them. This is the priority. Their sin needed to be covered. Their sin needed to be paid for. Their sin needed to be ransomed. Their sin needed to be wiped clean of everything it had touched because sin is deceiving, defiling, and destructive. And this is an act of God. As you walk through Leviticus 16, you're going to see the people of God could not do this for themselves. That's why God ordained a high priest to do it on their behalf with the means and the provision that God had given them. And this included sacrificing animals, covering everything in the tabernacle with blood, confessing the sins of the people, and to release a scapegoat of the two goats that were brought. As we come to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews shows that that is a shadow and a foundation and an instruction for who Christ is, our great high priest, our great sacrifice, and our sad, sadly true, he is our scapegoat upon whom the Lord puts our sins and sends away so that we can be clean, so that we can be forgiven, and so that we can now come into the presence of God and we can be one with him. What's God's priority? His holiness the holiness of the people he loves and his unity and his fellowship with them. And brothers and sisters, this is the priority of fasting. When you look at verse 29, Leviticus 16, 29, it says, and it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the 10th day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You can't do this yourself. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall, second time, afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. Okay, God's not calling you to go and cut yourself or beat yourself up. This is not a Catholic act of penance. We pound on my chest, right? That's not what he's saying. Verse 29 and 21, you shall afflict yourself, you shall do no work. 
This is how the Lord is calling them to respond by faith to his paying the price for their sin. And the verb translated afflict, in our English language, we associate that as people abusing other people. Okay, I understand it. Moving on. Let's find the biblical context. In Hebrew, it's anach. It means to be brought low. Okay, it means to be brought low. It, it means to be made humble. It means, means to be brought into a place of weakness or vulnerability. And the Lord is not commanding his people to torture themselves or do penance or earn their salvation. He's commanding them to set this day apart for the Lord's presence and, and his work in their lives. God's going to work in their lives. He's going to be present in their lives. They need to be ready for it. How? By humbling themselves, by removing distractions, by not working. Because this day is about whose work? It's about his work, not theirs. This day is about whose provision? His provision, not theirs. This day is about whose sustenance and nourishing? His sustaining and nourishing them by the blood of the lamb and the goat and the bull that sacrificed, but ultimately by the blood of his son, not by their efforts to prepare sandwiches or meals, right? Stop the daily routine so you can focus on his work which is the work you need the most. And for this reason, when you see the same word being used, Hanach, where God uses that same word in his description of what he did for them in the wilderness, I humbled you, Hanach, I afflicted you, and it comes up again on the Day of Atonement, afflict yourselves or humble yourselves, right? The connection between the two, that the tradition became, okay, we're going to humble ourselves in the way the Lord humbled us when we were wandering through the wilderness. We're going to abstain from eating or taking food or water. We're going to wait upon the Lord. We're going to forgive one another, and we're not going to work. Why? So we can focus on his forgiveness and his grace in our lives. And as we walk through the rest of Scripture, we see this becomes the principle and the framework for fasting on a regular basis. It is to focus on God's work and his priorities, but it is also to share his sorrow and his grief over sin. And so as you walk through the rest of Scripture, you see that fasting is frequently associated with mourning, grieving, and praying for God's deliverance when our sins have messed things up pretty big. So have a look, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, where we see this all come together. Nehemiah chapter 1. We'll go to verse 2. So he talks about Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what's Nehemiah's response to this heartbreaking news? Does he protest? Does he pick up a gun? Does he make a march on the capital? Nehemiah 1.4. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued what? What did he continue to do? Fasting and praying before the God of heaven, hand in hand, sharing his God's sorrow over the sad state of his people because of their sin. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. And so we see that fasting is part of a greater context of carrying God's heartbreak and his sorrow, not over the things of this world, 
but over my sins and the sins of God's people that have resulted in really devastating and damaging effects, both physical and spiritual, to the community and people of God. Breaking his heart, has no appetite. He mourns because it's a death. He fasts, but he doesn't do it just for spiritual power or access. He's doing it as he prays and he comes to the Lord. And then you're going to see he's going to seek guidance from the Lord about what he should do next and what are the next steps he's supposed to take. It's looking to the Lord. Lord, what we need is your presence. We need your leadership and we need your work to make things right. It's a focus on God's priorities and God's good name and his love and his work in their lives. It's focusing on what's most important. It's interesting to think, well, how does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Those whom the Lord has brought low and humbled and broken their hearts over their sin and the sins of others. Well, this brings us to our Final point for this morning. God's beloved children are to fast for God, not men. God's beloved children are to fast for God, not men. And this is Jesus' point when he gets to verse 16 in chapter 6, when he says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And Jesus is pointing out simply what he's walked us through with giving, with forgiving, with praying as he walks through all of these things. Hey, it's very clear. You very easily in your flesh are going to come to these things, and it's going to be distorted, and you're going to do it because you think, I'm going to be rewarded in the church community. I'm going to be rewarded by God. People are going to, that's our natural inclination. Don't be that way. That's hypocritical. Come back and be reminded by Christ's leadership in your life that your acts of worship and devotion are meant to be for an intimate relationship with the Heavenly Father who loves you perfectly. And that includes your regular and intentional fasting. It's not for spiritual power. It's not for purity. It's not so that you can be forgiven. I'm going to fast so I can be forgiven. It's not for self-devotion. It's a heartbreak and it's a grief over the sorrow, over the things that breaks God's heart because God grieves over our sin and he grieves over the consequences of our sin, separation from him and destruction of one another. And yet our Lord has provided us a remedy. That is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And our need at times is to give up or step aside from the things that distract us, our entertainment, our food, our work, all of those things. There are times where we need to step aside from all the distractions to be alone with the Lord and to say what's most important is Christ's presence in my life, his work in my life, his grace in my life. This is what I need more than anything else. And we see that fasting is an expression of lament over sin, suffering, and death. And it's a petition for God's grace and his guidance and his deliverance in our lives. Wow, do we need that more often, brothers and sisters? And do we need that in a regular but non-legalistic way? Jesus is shepherding his disciples in how to walk in their father's devotion. And when done that way by faith, it is, brothers and sisters, a beautiful, beautiful thing. What's sweet about our Lord is he provides a place for grief. He provides a place for lament. He provides a place for sorrow, not to be buried, but to be shared with the Lord and to be shared with the people of God in a right and good way. And so this brings us to our final slide this morning for application, reasons to fast. Yes, we should fast, and we should fast on a regular basis. Now, the rule of thumb is it's never done out of personal devotion. 
it's never done when it's a threat to your health or the health of others. That's a pretty straightforward standard, even in the Jewish tradition. But is it worthwhile one day a week giving up a meal to pray over what's important to the Lord? And what are some of the things? Do you have unsaved or unrepentant loved ones in your life? Family members, people who are on a course of destruction or who are not doing well. Gotta love that, right? <laughs> Someone should flush the toilet more often back there. Is, are there people in our lives, in your Bible study, in your discipleship groups, who are not doing well spiritually? Do we just stand by and let them go? Well, you know what? The Lord says, I am heartbroken over that. Breaks my heart. It's an opportunity. Do we stop and forego a meal and say, I'm going to pray for that person. I'm going to grieve over it. I'm going to sorrow over their sin because their sin is my sin. And we're going to pray to the Lord and ask for his guidance and for his presence and for his leadership to get a hold of their lives. Sin, suffering, and death. Global, national church. When they're shooting at a Super Bowl parade, do we just walk on? There's another one. Or do we stop and say, this nation is messed up and our churches are messed up? Heartbreaking to the Lord. Disgusting. Devastating. Even the NBA, they'll get on there and they'll stop their broadcast and talk about that instead of the game. That's fasting, brothers and sisters. It's stopping the day-to-day -day and saying, hey, there's something more important. They get it. There's something more important than a basketball game. Well, is there something more important than our work or our food? Need for guidance and clarity in God's priorities, especially during times of spiritual persecution and opposition. In part, this is where Thanksgiving came. The Puritans practiced fasting, and when they were being persecuted, they would call for weeks or days of fasting where together they would, if someone who was a brother of theirs got incarcerated or put in jail and prison or was going to get his head cut off for preaching the gospel, they would gather together and they would pray and fast. And then if that person got released, they would have a Thanksgiving feast to celebrate the Lord's answer to their prayer, Right? Looking to the Lord for guidance and clarity for decisions that you have to make, especially when it's hard and it's not clear. Let's step aside and spend time alone with God to appreciate his priorities and his sorrows. And let's let them guide us to walk in the way of a heavenly father who loves us perfectly and gave his son to show us that. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, how you have loved us. May your priorities and sorrows be our priorities and sorrows. And may these practices of righteousness serve only as tools and not ends in, of themselves. And the way we do it, Lord, may they express a devotion to you that is born out of a heart of love and faith in you for who you are and what you've already done for us in and through the gospel. In your name we pray, amen.